Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and I am thrilled to see so many of you here today for what I know is going to be a fantastic program. Uh, if you haven't yet seen our main history exhibition, Silicon City, Computer History Made in New York, um, I hope you will either stay later today and go through that show or come back during uh, regular weekly museum hours and see it. It's really quite dazzling and even has some, some relationship to the substance of today's discussion. Um, also want to make sure that all of you are members. If you're not, there's plenty of literature and colleagues outside who will help you join. Today's program, Inside the Surveillance State, is a part of our Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his great support, which has enabled us to bring so many fine historians and writers to this auditorium. Uh, I'd also like to thank the many Chairman's Council members who are in the audience today uh, for the great support that they give to this institution, which makes all of our work possible. Today's program will last about an hour and a half, and it will include a question and answer session. There will not be a formal book signing following the program, but copies of our speakers' books will be available in our museum store. We are really thrilled to welcome Linda Greenhouse back to the New York Historical Society. Professor Greenhouse is the Knight Distinguished Journalist in Residence and Joseph Goldstein Lecturer in Law at Yale Law School, where she's also a fellow of the Information Society Project. Prior to her position at Yale Law, Ms. Greenhouse had a distinguished 40-year career at the New York Times, during which time she received several major journalism awards, including the Pulitzer Prize and the Goldsmith Career Award for Excellence in Journalism from Harvard University's Kennedy School. Professor Greenhouse currently writes an online column for law, uh, about law for the Times Opinion section, and she has also written several books, including the forthcoming The Burger Court and The Rise of the Judicial Right, co-authored with Michael J. Gratz, which will be available later on this year. We are also delighted to welcome back Robert Post, who is Dean and Solon William Goldwin, Goldman Professor of, of Law at Yale Law School. As a law professor, his subject areas are constitutional law, First Amendment, legal history, and equal protection. Dean Post is a member of the American Philosophical Society and the American Law Institute, as well as a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and a former member of the Board of Directors of the American Constitution Society. He's written and edited numerous books, including Citizens D Divided, A Constitutional Theory of Campaign Finance Reform, and he publishes regularly in legal journals and other publications. We are also very pleased indeed to welcome back Kenji Yoshino, the Chief Justice Earl Warren Professor of Constitutional Law at NYU School of Law. His fields of interest include constitutional law, anti-discrimination law, and law and literature. Before joining the NYU faculty, Professor Yoshino taught at Yale Law School for a decade, where he served as Deputy Dean and the inaugural Guido Calabresi Professor of Law. He has published broadly in scholarly journals as well as in popular venues such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Slate. He is also the author of many books, including Speak Now, Marriage Equality on Trial, 
And now, as I ask our speakers to join me on the stage, I'd like to ask you to please make sure that anything that makes noise like a cell phone is switched off. So now, please do join me in welcoming our speakers to the stage. Good to see you. Louise, it's very good to be back here. So just out of our curiosity, the extent that we can see you with these lights, uh, who was here last night to watch the film? And who has previously seen the film? Okay. So we're not actually going to talk about the film. That's not the, <laughs> that's not the deal with these uh, Saturday morning programs, but we're going to explore some of the themes and the ideas that this film about life under the Stasi, life and the, the ultimate surveillance state um, generates. So I thought I would start out by reading something <clears throat> that I downloaded from my computer the other morning. I went on the USA Today website, actually, because I wanted to email to Robert uh, a story from USA Today about the current uh, dispute between Apple and the FBI. And when I clicked on this uh, story to send it, a, uh, a notice came up that said, we've made some changes in the privacy notice, which may interest you. <laughs> Please take the time to read the privacy notice. You consent to the data collection, use, sharing practices described in this privacy notice when you use this site. Now, how many people have popped up things like that when you open the mail or the computer? And how many people actually download the privacy policy, print it out, and read it? Nobody. Well, I, I was nobody also, but because I was preparing for this program, I thought, well, it's interesting. So it's actually scary. So I'm just going to read a few highlights of this to just set the mood here. We may use and share information that you provide or that we collect and store, including emails and other personal information. I'm skipping various more benign parts of this. In connection with ad serving and ad targeting on our services, we notify you that in some cases, de device, ident device identifying information could be used to identify you personally. How we collect information. We may collect and store information that you voluntarily supply to us, including information you send to us by email or other platforms. And they have a long list of all the kinds of information. And then we also collect and store information that is generated automatically as you use our services. For instance, your device's connection to the internet, which pages you visit through our services and how often, which features you interact with and how often, which advertisements we serve to you and your engagement with them, and information generated when you upload a photograph and so on. Um, <clears throat> Your device and your browser may automatically collect and transmit your device's unique identifier, IP address, MAC address, profile information, location information, the make and model of your device, et cetera, et cetera. You get the idea. We, along with third parties, may use other kinds of technology, such as local storage in connection with our services. These are like cookies. They're stored on your device, can be used to store certain information. Uh, but they're different. they differ from standard cookies, and so you may not be able to control them using standard browser tools and settings. Okay, and if you don't like this, they say, don't use our system. So this, of course, raises um, certain questions. And I think the, the general 
uh, point that I'd like to make here is last night we saw a film where surveillance depended on human-to-human -human interaction. Humans were spying on other humans. Many humans were spying on many humans. And now we don't need humans to spy on us. Our devices are spying on us. We voluntarily give up our privacy uh, in all kinds of ways. You know, many of us, if, you're, if you drive, have an easy pass uh, to go through the tolls. And of course, it serves our convenience and might get, give you a little bit of a discount on the toll. And every time you go through a toll booth, the government knows exactly where you were when, so on. Uh, things that we just automatically, we, we, in the dim recesses of our mind, we realize that we're giving up a quantum of personal privacy and we, we make that choice. Uh, and one thing we like to talk about is, is uh, the extent to which this may be age-related and our children and grandchildren uh, make choices that probably give up a whole lot more privacy than we do. And it would be interesting to think about uh, the extent to which they are aware of this, they care about it, and what the implications of that are. So the question is about privacy. Is there any left, really? And uh, Robert is going to talk about concepts of privacy, cultures of privacy, and how uh, it differs between the United States and, and Europe, and sort of basic understanding of this. I'm going to tick off a few of the other topics that uh, we'd like to talk about and that we would invite you to think about and talk about with us when we get to the question period. One uh, image in the film, and I will talk about this for just a second, um, that jumped out at me when uh, the minister is describing the various ways that the Stasi has learned to control uh, subversive, quote, subversive artists. And remember, he talks about artist number four and how you isolate this person for a certain amount of time. You don't, you don't hurt him. You feed him. It's not, it's not torture of any kind, but he's isolated from his society. And when he gets out, he never writes again. So. That resonates with um, something that's going on in the world of privacy and surveillance today. It's called predictive analytics. People have heard about that. So uh, it's, it's a kind of a data mining understanding of, of big data uh, by which uh, police departments can identify hotspots of crime before they occur. Uh, the Los Angeles County Welfare Department is using predictive analytics to identify um, those families and those children who are under their supervision, who are going to need some kind of intervention. They look at various characteristics and behavior characteristics <clears throat> of those families. So that's one thing we might want to explore. Uh, the government, of course, we learned uh, both from the Snowden revelations and other revelations that have come out, uh, collects vast quantities of information. Uh, one that people may or may not be terrifically aware of is the Stingray, which is a little uh, suitcase-sized device that um, imitates cell phone towers. And so uh, the government uses this to track uh, through cell phones uh, the movements and location of criminal suspects. So and then, of course, we get to uh, Apple against the FBI or the FBI against Apple, uh, which is evolving in real time and brings up all kinds of uh, fascinating questions. It really has kind of caught the culture uh, at, a, at a moment, I think, of um, great concern about what's going on. Uh, 
the letter that uh, Tim Cook, the head of Apple, sent out to his customers, a message to our customers. Uh, he said this, the government is asking Apple to hack our own users and undermine decades of security advancements that protect our customers, including tens of millions of American citizens. Of course, Apple would like all of us to be their customers. From sophisticated hackers and cyber criminals, the same engineers who built strong encryption into the iPhone to protect our users would, ironically, be ordered to weaken those protections and make our users less safe. Now, we can get into the Apple issue in a more granular way, and we may have different views on that. Uh, <coughs> So, and one, one fascinating thing, Apple is being represented by Ted Olson, who's making a, a series of very interesting legal arguments, including the notion that uh, uh, software code is speech, he claims. And so uh, if Apple is required to write code that will open, provide a backdoor into the iPhone, that's uh, coerced speech, right? Think about that. So on that note, I'll just mention a few other kind of legal concepts that are floating around. Because the, <clears throat> the Supreme Court, of course, is not uh, immune from these disputes that are going on. Uh, and has started, has issued some uh, decisions recently that are somewhat relevant. Back in 2012, a case called the United States against Jones, the question was, uh, can the police put a GPS device on a car that they want to track? For days or weeks or months uh, without a warrant. And uh, of course, car just goes in public spaces. And if uh, you had an agent in a following car tracking this car for days or weeks or months, you would not need a warrant because it's just out in the public. So do you need a warrant if you put a GPS device on the car? Uh, and the court said, yes, you do. I won't get into the legal analysis, but the, the bottom line was, yes, you do need a warrant. Uh, <clears throat> in 2014, uh, there was a case called Riley against California. And the question there was, um, somebody's arrested for some crime or other, uh, and there's a doctrine known as search incident to arrest, where you can search whatever's on that person that you are lawfully arresting. Uh, what if you find a cell phone in the person's pocket? Now, in the old days, if you found a diary in the person's pocket, of course, you could just police could take that, look at that as part of the search incident to arrest. So is there something different about a cell phone? And Chief Justice Roberts, writing a unanimous opinion for the Supreme Court, said there is a difference in kind because a cell phone can contain a library's worth of information and you know, deep dive into personal information. And the police cannot search a cell phone uh, without a warrant. So these are just kind of interesting uh, ideas to think about. And the last case I'll mention is one that came out um, last month from a federal court of appeals, the Sixth Circuit. Uh, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobaccos, and Firearms was interested in uh, the goings-on in a trailer on a big piece of land in rural Tennessee. They thought this was being operated uh, by a drug ring. And so they sent an agent uh, to kind of stake out the place. And the agent, of course, uh, stood out like a sore thumb. And, of course, nothing happened because the agent was standing right there. So uh, <coughs> the uh, Bureau of ATF thought, okay, let's put a a camera up on a telephone pole and aimed at this trailer and they kept the camera up there for 10 weeks and they saw the comings and goings and you know got a pretty good idea that indeed there was a drug ring based in this uh, trailer um, and uh, arrest followed and the claim was that this was an unlawful search 
uh, kind of analogous to the GPS, I guess, or to the cell phone. And the Sixth Circuit said, uh, no, it was not a search. Uh, no warrant was needed. Uh, no problem was created by this because um, it was the, the camera up on the pole was simply an eye on what it could see uh, going on in the public space. Well, you know, is there some difference? Uh, do we think there's some difference between um, somebody having to stake out a property as a human body standing there and the camera up on a cell phone uh, unblinking day and night for, for 10 weeks? So these are just some of the issues that are uh, floating around in the background as we think about uh, life in the surveillance state. And I'm now going to turn it over to Robert, who's going to talk more specifically and deeply about the concept of privacy. Thank you, Linda, and uh, thank you all for, for coming this morning. I, I thought I would just talk a little bit about what we mean when we talk about uh, the concept of uh, privacy. Uh, most of us think of privacy as like uh, an individual right. Um, and there's some information which is private, and there's some information which is public, and you can divide it, and we all know what it is, and that's an intrinsic property of the kind of information we're talking about. Uh, when the European Union uh, puts out a directive to protect private information, that's how they conceptualize it. There's some information that's private, that's a property of the information, and there's other information that isn't. I happen to be on the board of advisors uh, for the restatement third of private information, and we're starting to move in that direction. In the United States, we use the concept of private information, as though some information were intrinsically private and some not. And what I want to do this morning is to call that into question for you, to give you a slightly different picture of what we uh, might be invoking when we use, as we do all the time, this notion of private information. So take a very simple case. It's, in fact, one of the first cases in the United States uh, that turns on an invasion of privacy. It's the case called Brent versus Morgan. It comes out of the state of Kentucky in the 1920s. So you have um, a veterinarian uh, who owns, owes money to a car mechanic. And the car mechanic is trying to get uh, his bill paid, can't do it, can't do it, gets very frustrated, puts up a sign on his property and says, this veterinarian owes me $26.93, something like that. And the veterinarian says, that's a terrible thing to do. That makes my debt public. And I'm suing you for invasion of privacy. And because you have uh, made me um, ashamed uh, in the general public. That's an embarrassing fact to disclose about me. And the, uh, the car mechanic defends on the ground of truth. He said, it's really true. You owe me that money. So uh, what are you complaining about? And the veterinarian says, no, I'm not complaining that you're saying something untrue. I'm complaining that you're invading my privacy by making my debt public. And my debt to you is a private fact, not a public fact. And the a veterinarian wins that case in the Supreme Court of Kentucky. That's one of the first cases we have in which the right of privacy is recognized in the United States. So think about that case for a minute. Uh, that I owe you money uh, has to be public in the sense that the bank knows it, you and I know it, probably our spouses know it, maybe our friends do. But the allegation in that case is that information shouldn't be disclosed generally to the public or to certain kinds of people, or in a certain kind of context. So the claim that you're violating my privacy is not so much that there are facts that can never be disclosed. It's rather how you disclose those facts, to whom, in what context. 
a claim of a violation of privacy is always a contextual claim. So take another simple kind of case. Um, you have a plastic surgeon, this is another real case, who takes before and after pictures of his patient to show how successful um, his plastic surgery is. And he shows these pictures at a dinner party. And the patient sues for violation of privacy. Well, this tells you a lot of things about privacy, like why would the patient want to put in the pages of the US reports the pictures of before and after, publicize the very thing she wants to be private. That's, we, we, have, to get to, we have to analyze that problem. But the, the interesting point about that is the before and after pictures, they'd be plainly relevant to many things uh, in a doctor's practice. They would be disclosed to nurses. They'd be disclosed to many third parties. But the claim here is you can't disclose it at a dinner party to people who have nothing to do with your medical practice. So a claim about privacy is always a claim that there are certain normative boundaries about whom you disclose information to, in what circumstances, and you're trespassing those. And how do we know those normative boundaries? So take a very elementary case about those normative boundaries. This is not a case about information, but a case about surveillance. The first case in New Hampshire that protects privacy is a case in which uh, two people who are renting uh, an apartment claim that the landlord has put a microphone under their bed. And they sue for invasion of privacy. And the court says, yes, this is a terrible thing. It's humiliating. Uh, you can't put a mic. This is like the movie we saw um, last night. You can't put a microphone under. And how do you know that you can't put a microphone under the bed? How does the court know that that's an inappropriate place to put a microphone? As distinct, say, from in the lamppost outside the trailer park that Linda was just talking about. Where is it written that you can't do such a thing? If you try to press that question, you'll see that underneath the idea of privacy lies a very complicated picture of what it means to live in society. And that picture starts with an idea that used to be at the heart of the social sciences, but with the rise of economics has virtually disappeared. That idea is the idea of socialization. We grow up in a society by internalizing the expectations and norms of those around us. Uh, the great sociologist Durkheim, for example, had that picture of what it means to be a human being. And in modern sociologist Irving Goffman writes about that. Um, George Herbert Mead had that picture of a human being. We know each other because you were brought up with parents who told you, do this, don't do this, don't bite, you know, pay attention, say thank you, and we all know what it is to be respectful for one another, to one another because we've internalized these norms. And that's part of our kit as literate human beings in this culture. So the difference between a human child and a feral child, a child who's been brought up in the woods by wolves, is that a human child has internalized the norms that make us human. What makes us human is what we share intersubjectively with others, common expectations about how we behave to each other. So Irving Goffman once did a lecture of the norms of lecturing when he was president of the American Sociological. So I'm facing you. If I were to give this lecture facing the thing, facing the back wall, you'd say that person doesn't understand the norms of giving a lecture. Right? Or we have norms of per personal space. If I were to get too close to Linda, she would start to smile and get nervous because we all know how close we're supposed to be to each other. And those things vary by different cultures. Correct. So if I were in Japan, it would be an entirely different concept of personal space. But notice that this concept of personal space is highly contextual. 
If I were in a packed elevator, it'd be perfectly appropriate. You are very close to each other in seats. But if we were to sit that close to each other in a large stage, it would feel peculiar. And we all know this. And one major function of the law is to uh, what the anthropologist Paul Bohannon called double institutionalized norms. So the law takes the norms that we all have about appropriate disclosures of information, appropriate forms of personal space, and it institutionalizes them within a court system, meaning um, within an ability to follow precedent, for juries to follow rules. It, it, the, the law itself has certain needs of the principles which it formulates. It double institutionalizes them, and it enforces them. And the mark of the law doing that it is it appeals to the reasonable person. Have you ever heard of the reasonable person? The reasonable person isn't a poll. You can't know it empirically by you know, an NBC Quinnipiac poll of something or another. It's the jurors trying to say, what would be proper and improper to do around here? It's the juror saying, what, is our, what would a literate member of this culture know to be normatively proper and improper? And whenever the law is enforcing privacy, that's what it's enforcing. It's enforcing our ability to um, have our expectations of being treated with respect by others enforced. And the law says, if someone treats you with that kind of disrespect that they invade your privacy, um, that is an injury that the law will repair. So what is the law protecting when it protects privacy? It's not protecting something just about you. It's protecting the social norms that make us who we are. It's first person plural not merely first person singular. The law is protecting the intersubjective norms that define us as a community and in which you participate. And when someone doesn't treat you the way we treat people around here, when we treat people with respect, um, the law will say that's a bad um, thing. Now, we get a lot of benefits from having um, these uh, norms. For one thing, they're a language by which we are able to say lots of things in our lives. So take norms of personal space. Norms of personal space, if I wave them, if I take a shower with you, if I sleep in the same bed with you, that's an act of intimacy. But if the state is sleeping in the same bed with me, that's an act of intrusion. Right? It's an act of violation. And so the, the, this language of personal space enables us to become autonomous human beings and to express very important things in our lives things about relationships and love and um, distance um, and so forth. Those are, that's a, a large part of the stakes of protecting um, privacy. Now, uh, notice that when the state wants to invade your privacy, and these are the Fourth Amendment cases that Linda is talking about, the, for, the criteria for needing a warrant under the Fourth Amendment is, would a person have a reasonable expectation of privacy? So there's that word reasonable again meaning what's the norms of the society around uh, having a cell phone or having a GPS uh, uh, put in your car, a GPS locator. And what the law is doing is enforcing general expectations of respect and privacy um, within the enforcement of the criminal law. And, but it's saying something quite mild, and this will come up in our consideration of the Apple case. It's saying, Insofar as you have a reasonable expectation of privacy, we're not going to let the state arbitrarily invade your privacy. What we're, what we're going to say is a neutral party, a judge, has to look over the state's claim to invade your privacy and decide that you have a real reason 
to invade it, namely you know, the prosecution of crime, the investigation of crime. And that's the, the we, we need to have an assessment about whether your privacy should outweigh the state's need in um, prosecuting and enforcing um, crime control. Um, and that's how we, and in Apple, of course, there is a third party. There's a judge who says, we need to invade the privacy there. So they're asking for something um, in addition to that. So that should come into our consideration of the Apple case. But in all these situations, um, what the law is doing is asking for uh, not permitting the state simply on its own say-so to run roughshod over your expectations of privacy. And what we saw, for those of you who saw the movie last night, the Stasi, that's the very paradigmatic case of, of the state gone mad. Because here you see the state bugging somebody, putting microphones under the bed in order to eliminate a rival for a girlfriend. Right? That's an abuse of power, and that's what we're afraid of. But if there had been you know, evidence that they were running cocaine or something, then a judge probably would have allowed a warrant, and it would have been a whole different thing. So um, what you saw last night was what we, our fear, which is the state itself overturning all the expectations of control of our own information that allows us to enact and, uh, these norms of mutual respect. So with that in mind, what can we say about the kind of uh, uh, invasions of privacy that uh, Linda is talking about. Now, first of all, notice a lot of these are digital. A lot of these concern a newly developing digital world. And the first thing about that is we are interdigitated. <laughs> Everything we do is in this digital space, leaving traces. And this is something new for human beings, that we are, um, we, we, lived, we leave this trail in almost every interaction we have. Any of you read John Grisham novels? It's always about, in the end, it's always about how can you escape from somebody without leaving this digital trail by using you know, your cash card or your, you know, writing a check or something like that where they can trace uh, where you are. So how you actually get off this grid, that's a serious problem for us. We have a grid where um, this information space is so total. That's the first point. Second point is what are the social norms that govern this space? It turns out they are not so clear. We have norms about homes. We have norms about our wallets. We don't have norms about what we do and don't do in cyberspace. These are in the process of developing. So it's very hard for the law to enforce reasonable expectations of privacy when we don't know what those are. Most of you probably check off that privacy agreement without reading it. Does that create a norm or not create a norm? And how is the law going to conceive such a situation if the job of the law, as I suggested to you, is to double institutionalize norms that you already have of what's appropriate and inappropriate in um, cyberspace? So that's the second problem for privacy in cyberspace. No one knows really what to expect. And if you look at um, young people uh, and, uh, um, and you're an older person like I am, you, it's very hard to understand what they consider public and private. They put everything of their lives on Facebook and they share every photograph of every event and then they get very offended by invasions of privacy. And I, for one, can't understand how they're drawing those lines. Um, and I'm sure they do because they, they know when they're offended. But it's very hard for third parties to read this in a way that would allow protections in a, in a coherent way, in the way I'm describing to you, what is the reasonable person or the reasonable teenager think in such a situation. <laughs> and the, the third point to, uh, 
to make here. I, Robert, I think they're laughing because the notion of reasonable teenager. I know that, exactly. <laughs> That's what I was putting into. <laughs> uh, and the third point to make here is uh, what, what um, social interest do we have in control? So we put privacy against the dispersion of information because information has a value. And to make that very concrete for you, most of you probably want credit. Now, if uh, I'm going to give you credit, um, I can give you cheaper credit if I know more about you, if I know your credit history. But if privacy prevents me from knowing your credit history, your credit's going to be more expensive. Right? So there's a more efficient distribution of resources if we have more information. An economist would call that information costs that add transaction costs to any, um, any, um, any dealings. Right? So the more we make uh, transactions transparent, the cheaper, more efficient they are. So privacy interrupts flows of information that actually increase efficiency in the marketplace. And we all suffer when the marketplace is inefficient. Um, that's an economic take. I could give you a political take of the, of the countervailing uh, uh, value besides privacy. And that is, um, what do we think about the public space? We generally talk about the public's right to know. Right? That's the phrase we use. Why does the public have a right to know? Because in public, we have to justify ourselves. The key concept of the public is accountability. You can't be accountable unless, unless the public knows what it needs to know to evaluate your behavior in public. So we talk about the pitiless glare of publicity. It's pitiless precisely because the notion of accountability runs roughshod over the intersubjective norms by which we control information. Publicity is pitiless because it's not based upon these norms of respect. It's based instead upon the idea of accountability. Um, and these are very much in tension. And the figure who best embodies that tension is Louis Brandeis, you know, the great justice. And he said two things which are equally convincing and equally memorable. He said, on the one hand, sunlight is the best disinfectant. Namely, we should see everything. And he said, he was the inventor of the right to privacy. He said the right to be let alone is the most basic right. And that's another tension that we have when we speak about um, the enforcement of privacy, how we put these two imperatives together. So I'll just stop there having framed those problems. Can, can I just, what, one point that your talk brings to my mind is in, in the judicial process, I mean, how do judges figure these things out at the, at the margins of what they know. So, so judges reason by analogy, right? So that was the Riley case. That was the cell phone case. So is a cell phone more like a diary or more like um, uh, you know, an MRI that can tell us what you've been thinking for the last five years? And how, how does the court know? Uh, the, the first uh, internet-related case that the court had was um, a case called Reno against ACLU uh, that had to evaluate the constitutionality of a federal law that made it a crime to communicate over the internet, uh, pornographic indecent. images, indecent, indecent uh, images that could be downloaded by children, the Communications Decency Act. Well, when that case came up, which was in the, in the 90s, I think, late 90s, when was Well, Janet Reno was. Right. Uh, most of the justices were not on the internet. Uh, the court didn't use email. Uh, uh, they, they had to bring over uh, people from the Library of Congress to give them basic instruction 
on how to turn on a computer. So here we had these nine justices facing, uh, you know, this, this kind of frontier new federal law that was going to govern uh, the First Amendment in cyberspace. I mean, this was kind of a scary moment. Um, they got it. They unanimously ruled that the statute was unconstitutional. It was very interesting. Uh, but, you know, so maybe we got kind of lucky there, but it's not always going to be the case. And sometimes uh, the analogies will simply uh, fail, which maybe is an invitation for Kenji to jump in here. Yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful. Thank you both for your comments, and thank you all for uh, joining us today. I very much want to pick up on uh, this theme, and my point is really a basic one, which is that technology is moving in a kind of hockey stick-like fashion, and the kind of social norms that Robert is talking about, including the social norms that are embedded in the law that Linda is talking about, uh, are gasping to keep up with it and probably will not be able to keep up with it in any kind of satisfactory way. So I want to begin by thinking about the uh, 18th century idea of the panopticon. Right? So this is familiar to many of you. This is Jeremy Bentham's design for a prison. And the design was that you would have a donut-shaped building in which the inmates were housed. And in the center of the donut, there would be a tower. Right? And then the watch person would be in the tower right, looking at the inmates. And every inmate would be visible from the tower. The key thing, though, was that the individuals in the tower were not visible from the donut-shaped building. Right? So the transparency was one way. And so this meant that there needn't be anybody in the tower, according to Bentham, in order for the people in the prison to feel that they were being surveyed. So the whole point of the panopticon, which comes from you know, all-seeing, also from the Greek mythological character who had a uh, hundred eyes, um, is the notion that you could always be seen right, without knowing whether you were actually being seen, right? And that essentially turned the prisoners against themselves, right? If you always know that you're being seen, then you're going to be, or you're, that you could be being seen, then you're going to be very mindful uh, of your own behavior, and that was the design. This wasn't just a uh, pipe dream of Bentham. He actually proposed it as an uh, uh, actual prison, and uh, English authorities went some way, including uh, paying him some uh, a handsome sum of money to uh, begin designing and building this, uh, but it ultimately sort of uh, collapsed as being uh, impracticable and objectionable for several reasons. I want to suggest that uh, the movement of the digital age has put us all uh, in this panopticon so that we all uh, can be seen uh, without knowing uh, whether we're being seen at any particular time. And uh, we are not, you know, inmates of a prison, so there's less of an argument, you know, that uh, we, there's some vital security interest in uh, keeping eyes on us at all times, right? Uh, and I want to say that one of the things that's interesting is that this might suggest to us that we don't have a clear, right, sense of how much we are able to disown our own knowledge, because I think Bentham may have been wrong in assuming that the prisoners would then begin to police themselves as opposed to just living their lives in their ordinary way uh, in denial of the fact that they could be seen at any time. Right? Because one of the things that we learned from the film last night is that uh, the individuals who are being surveyed are you know, 
live with this, right, are, are relatively equable, right, about the fact that surveillance is everywhere and they go on with their everyday life, including, you know, having intercourse with each other. Um, so in the case that Robert uh, mentioned about uh, privacy, where there is an eavesdropper with the bug in the bedroom, uh, one of the claims that was made by the man in the case was that he became impotent, right, as a result of the fact that he uh, learned that the government was eavesdropping on him. But there are accounts from this period, um, the Stasi uh, East Germany, that say that individuals would say, actually, I get a kind of exhibitionist thrill from the fact that the government might be listening in. And this may have just been bravado, right? But it's at least this notion of saying that um, Bentham may have been wrong in assuming that uh, the notion that we could be surveyed would necessarily uh, dramatically alter our behavior because I think that there's something in us that rebels against this reality and it makes it very hard for us to uh, internalize it and realize it in the way that uh, Robert was talking about. So I take really Robert's point about privacy to be saying that, you know, there is no private without a public in a very simple sense, right? But Robert, you know, goes much deeper than that. But I just want to start out with etymologies where, you know, public comes from the people. You know, private means just the absence of, right? So privacy is just the absence of a public, right? But what Robert is saying is like privacy, that's a, that that's a kind of fiction or a fantasy about privacy. And the line between the private and the public is always drawn in the public sphere. Right. So that one way of understanding what he's saying is that it's only by coming into community that we can even create the norms about where you know, the prying eyes of the government or the public cannot come. Right. Uh, so if we understand that uh, to be the case, then uh, it's quite uh, understandable that we would have a very, very difficult time you know, internalizing this idea uh, that we're constantly being watched. And that might be one of the hardest things for us to realize, right? uh, because it really means that you know, we have you know, changed our social norms so dramatically uh, that you know, even in the bedroom that we have to behave you know, as if uh, we were um, being watched by the Stasi rather than being able to bring these claims about the right to privacy. So I now want to take sort of three data points about this notion of technology outstripping cultural norms. Uh, so the first nor uh, one is, is really just um, literary or cultural. So you know, I'm a great lover of literature. I teach law and literature. And one of the reasons that I love it is because I think that literature is a very good bellwether for social anxieties uh, that the law is trying to capture. And I think of literature as a kind of rest of life you know, with regard to the law in the sense that uh, literature is a rest in the sense of residue. You know, uh, Washi Dimmick has a wonderful book called Residues of Justice, talking about literature as capturing the kind of messy details of life that the law uh, cannot capture through uh, its notion of the reasonable person, for example. But I also think about it as rest as repose. You know, rest is recreation, rest is play, right? And so I think that literature often shows us in its lambency and its playfulness, you know, a world, you know, that the law uh, inadequately captures. So I want to stack up two dystopian novels about um, the lack of privacy in the surveillance state. And one is uh, the novel 1984, which was obviously George Orwell's vision of uh, what would happen. He's writing in 1948, so he just inverts the numbers. Incidentally, The Lives of Others takes place in the year 1984, so it's set in that period. I think probably not by accident you know, on the part of the director. Um, but there's a vision there of, that's very similar to uh, Bentham's Panopticon. But there's a sense in which you know, ultimately um, the... The novel is very haunting and has had a very long life, but is really presented as a, as a thought experiment or a, a dystopia. Whereas I want to contrast that to David Eggers' you know, novel a couple of years ago uh, called The Circle, 
where he's talking about a Google-like company, right, that really is able to see everything. And this goes exactly to Linda's point, that there's something that strikes us as uh, implausible, right, uh, even as we fight through uh, the denial that I was talking about earlier, about the idea that uh, a government could enact such a scheme, right? But once it becomes technology, right, and so you actually don't need, you know, the agency of a government to do it, but technology is actually surveying us, it becomes much more plausible. So there's something much more deeply familiar, at least to me, when I read Eggers' novel, you know, between Eggers' novel and the life that I'm leading today, uh, and, you know, thinking about uh, reading George Orwell's uh, 1984 and thinking about my day-to-day -day life. And I think that that, again, uh, is the difference that technology makes, right? So in the same way that, you know, uh, that technology in 1984 is uh, kind of pre-internet, uh, you know, the internet uh, is not imagined. Uh, and so therefore, you know, the things that he says about surveillance are a little bit off, you know, about, you know, the TV kind of watching you is not exactly the way in which we experience uh, surveillance today. Uh, but when you read The Circle, it becomes a very, very vivid notion of what uh, our daily life could look like. Uh, and so it's a very plausible uh, dystopia. Uh, I would also add that in both of these instances, you know, there's a betrayal at the end, right? Where it's just to say the person who is supposed to be standing up, you know, against this totalitarian regime uh, actually betrays, you know, the uh, protagonist or the, uh, the, uh, the good actor, right? In order to um, serve the, the broader system. And so both end with a kind of closing of the circle, to use David Eggers' analogy, uh, which is a very um, dark um, uh, metaphor in the circle, but I think is a very uh, plausible one uh, relative to the, uh, the relatively implausible one of, um, of 1984. The second thing I want to pick up on is this notion of millennials and whether or not millennials are being particularly urbane or particularly naive, right, with their, in their regard to technology. I realize that there are contrasting poles out there, and Robert was alluding to the contradiction uh, that uh, many young people are living in and the need to manage paradoxes about, you know, to what extent um, information that is shared publicly is uh, not actually um, uh, so public that you can't take umbrage when it's made public beyond a certain boundary. Uh, but I want to say that the dominant note that I see in the polls is that uh, younger individuals are much more comfortable with revealing uh, private information about themselves through social media. And the dominant explanation for this is, is actually twofold, right? I mean, one is that young people are so uh, naive that they don't understand the consequences of what they're doing. So they don't understand that when they make themselves public in this way, an employer could go on and vet them as many employers now do, you know, on Facebook or on social media or what have you, right? And so they just need to grow up and they'll grow out of it. But the other one is that they're particularly urbane and that they understand as digital natives that uh, this is the, the kind of end state that we're all heading towards, right? And so uh, they may as well sort of uh, get used to it, right? So their expectations of privacy are being measured against a baseline of, you know, David Eggers is a circle rather than a baseline of, you know, George Orwell's uh, 1984. And I have to say that I list, you know, obviously only time will tell, but I list towards the second explanation over uh, the first in the sense that I, I do think that our young people are understanding that technology is so outpacing any capacity to regulate it that they've just said, you know, ought implies can. You can't say that you have to regulate this, you know, if there's actually no capacity uh, to regulate it. And so they're giving up their sense of privacy. Another really interesting point, and I'd be curious to know, uh, both Robert and Linda, what you think of this, is that I also see this 
a gradual tendency to think about privacy as moving from, and this is often a contrast that's made between Europe and the United States, but I think it's also occurring across time within the United States, as a notion of privacy as um, honor, which is the European notion classically, as uh, your colleague Jim Whitman has pointed out, to a notion of liberty, right, in the United States. And what I see in young people today is uh, much more of thinking about privacy as a commodity. So privacy has been commodified and the kind of dignitary uh, sense of it where this is not to be bargained away, this is not on the market, is actually exemplified by a recent Annenberg poll where uh, if you were in the non-millennial population, 51% uh, of individuals uh, said, sorry, uh, strike that. If you were in the non-millennial population, 40% of individuals said that you know privacy was not something they would be willing to give up for a good or service. So it was not something to be bartered away. But a majority of millennials, 51%, said that they would do happily sort of barter it away. Right. So, so the majority of the 40% do it anyway. Yeah, exactly. So that that that's, that I think gets to my urbane point of like, I think the millennials could be being more urbane and saying, I'm just going to get the benefit of the bargain. I'm not just going to give this up for free uh, because we're already right moving towards an end state in which uh, we don't have this dignitary idea of privacy. Again, ought implies can. So if we can't have it, right, if we can't do what we ought to be doing, even if we would subscribe to that as an ideal, uh, then we might be uh, more realistic and hard-headed about it. So it's they who are being more urbane about this under this accounting than uh, we are in saying, you know, we, you know, would like that we'd like the older regime of privacy better. And then the third data point is the data point of the law, and uh, Linda has really ably, you know, uh, canvassed uh, that terrain. So I just want to add a couple of other uh, data points, if you will, to. Uh, her um, exegesis of the law. So one is the Kilo case. This is a thermal imaging case. And we were just talking about this over dinner last night. And uh, Scalia, in a majority opinion uh, in that case, says that, um, I think this is 2001, that the use of a thermal imaging device, which was used in that particular case to, uh, without a warrant, to determine whether or not an individual is growing marijuana in their house. And so uh, the heat lamps that you need to um, grow marijuana, so I'm told, right, are, uh, emanate a lot of heat. And so if you do the thermal imaging, you know, over it, uh, then uh, you actually see these hot spots in the house. And then that gave them, you know, enough of a reason to go out and get, or probable cause to go get a warrant. And then the question was, you know, could you have done the first, you know, uh, imaging or scan without uh, having a warrant uh, for that scan? And uh, Scalia said, yes, you had to have a warrant in order to uh, uh, engage in that scan uh, because he defined privacy as a kind of curtilage of the house, right? So he said, you know, if you're inside of the home, you know, you have a reasonable expectation of privacy. But then he also said something really interesting, which was um, both to Robert's and to Linda's points, uh, which is to say that the culture may change with regard to this. So he wasn't saying, I'm saying this for all time. He said the culture may change with regard to how these devices are used and how other such technologies are used, such that people understand that they no longer have this reasonable expectation of privacy. So again, this is not just something that you can do without context, to Robert's point, but rather something that is fashioned. The reasonable expectation of privacy is fashioned in the public domain. And then the final case I want to break, uh, bring up is the um, Sidio Antero versus uh, Quan case. Uh, and in that case, there was a... Um, public employer who had given um, devices to uh, its employees, and then some of its employees were sending personal texts, including texts of a sexual nature among themselves. And then when the 
employer uh, discovered this, they were disciplined, and then they brought a Fourth Amendment uh, suit saying that uh, these, the access to the, uh, to the devices had been uh, done without uh, warrant. Um, and the Supreme Court kind of dodged uh, the issue, uh, uh, saying only that you know, the search was ultimately reasonable and sort of, sort of punted on the technology issue. But it punted in a very kind of fully elaborated way. So I want to kind of end on this note where Justice Kennedy, writing for the majority, says, you know, that technology is very, very uncertain in this area in the sense of how quickly it's advancing and the law should be very slow to move in when we don't have an understanding of what reasonable expectations of privacy are and what the culture that is being built around this is. And he gave uh, two uh, cases uh, that are sort of bookends to each other as uh, example of how the court uh, mores had changed over time uh, in response to I believe, the nation's mores. So he gave the Olmsted case, which I think is uh, 1928, and then the Katz case in 1967. And in the Olmsted case, uh, wiretapping uh, was deemed to be uh, permissible, you know, without a warrant. And then Katz overrules uh, Olmsted, saying you have a reasonable expectation of privacy in a phone booth, and so therefore uh, wiretapping in that context is, uh, is impermissible, uh, absent uh, a warrant. And uh, so in that case, what we see is like technology, you know, it remains the same or, you know, advances, you know, slightly. And then the rights edifice, you know, built around it becomes stronger. But in a way, you know, I think that's an ironic, you know, invocation, right, of those two cases, because I think the direction is going to be very much in the opposite uh, arena. Whereas I think that instead of having, you know, Olmsted come first and, and Katz come second, I think we're going to have Katz come first and Olmsted come second, right? Which is to say, I think what the court is realizing is that technology is taking off like a, a hockey stick, right? And that the law is scrambling to, uh, to keep up with it. Because uh, Robert uh, mentioned uh, John Grisham, I feel like I can go a little uh, lowbrow here, even with this august audience. So I'm going to conclude with this uh, one of my favorite lines from one of my favorite uh, shows now over uh, 30 Rock, uh, where Tina Fey's you know, kind of deadbeat you know, ex-boyfriend uh, is a used beeper salesman. right? <laughs> and uh, when he's trying to get back together with her, he says, I'm really successful now. I'm a used beeper salesman. And he says, you know, as you know, technology is cyclical. Right? And the whole point of this is like, if there's one thing that isn't cyclical, right, uh, it is technology, right? And so what I'm trying to say is that if we have a nonlinear exponential acceleration of technology, there's no way in which the necessary conversation that we need to have in the public sphere about what our settled mores of privacy are, are ever going to be able to keep up with that. Right? And so that's our modern dilemma. So I just want to add a fourth data point inspired by uh, what Kenji's saying about technology. And I don't know whether you had this controversy in New York, but many cities are putting uh, TV cameras at intersections, you know, and people view that as an invasion of privacy, even though it's in public. And one argument that's made is no one's looking at the camera. I mean, no one is like reviewing it. So here's two different scenarios of violating privacy. The one is the ancient scenario, as in the lives of others, as in you have the Stasi and somebody's actually listening to what you're saying. So it's human being to human being, and it's a, it's a, um, it's a, it, it's a, a disrespectful way to act toward another human being, and that's you know these people are terrible people for listening in, right? So it's a person that's doing something bad. Here's a different way to understand, given the, given the rise of technology. Um, we are uh, scanning everything about you, and no one is looking at it. It's one machine. This is what the NSA does. You know, it's one machine looking at everything, and it keeps it in, in the data points. Gmail 
uh, Google scans all your Gmails, but by a machine to take out keywords to target advertising for you. It's not like there's not a human on the other end. It's technology listening to you and using you in your way. So a lot of the dystopian fantasies to bring this back to popular culture, like the Terminator, the rise of the machines, is that we as human beings are losing the capacity to be human because we are being um, converted as cyborgs into a, a machine world. And when that happens, uh, we are no longer human. We, are, we simply become appendages to the machines. The matrix is like outside. Like, um, they use us for their purposes. And what do we lose when that happens? We lose our ability to be human. And in such an instance, privacy becomes a stand-in, not for dignity between people, but for the raw capacity, think here of Arendt speaking about statelessness after the World War II, the raw capacity to be human. And I think, I'm guessing, that that might be one reason that the final line of the movie last night, as his, for me, it's for me, is so moving. Because he, he, at the end of that movie, I find that always, always find that very um, deep in me, the, my response to that line. And it's because he's being recognized as a distinct person, as me, not as an appendage to the machine, as something outside of all of that. I am a human being, and I'm recognized as a human being as such. And um, I think, in part, the rise of technology is the rise of systemics. It's the rise of systems which can be more or less human and now are less and less human. And that's not how we human beings function. And we want a space just to be me, meaning not systematic. And privacy, I think, is part of that conversation for us. And just a riff off of that, if I may, you know, if, the, if you think about the dedication in that book, right, it's his initials and then his presumably Stasi number, right? So it's, it, he's, he's been recognized, he's been decrypted, right? Exactly. So suddenly we, exactly. we see, right, the code name that he goes by lined up with his actual human yeah, given exactly. name, right? And so he sees that recognition, right? And then- And but we also, feel it too. And him. we feel it too, right? But, but also, I, and I think to, to the person who says, you know, it's okay that these cameras are just taking photos of me because nobody's listening in, right? I think that the best answer to that is the lives of others because once you take the human element out of it, then the human capacity to actually have compassion and interrupt the surveillance as, you know, uh, the protagonist and the lives of others does um, is now unavailable, right? So now, you know, going back to uh, the circle, right? Uh, the terrible thing in the circle, one of the most terrible events that occurs there is that one of the individuals signs up for this, I want total transparency, right? And she learns, this is not the protagonist, but her mentor, Annie, she learns that um, her parents, you know, uh, just stood by and watched a homeless person die in front of them, right? And so there's no interrupting mechanism because she's already volunteered to sort of have everything about her life become transparent. And so there's no human agency that would be able to interrupt, that would be able to edit, that would be able to have a kind of sense of compassion uh, to, to, to sort of take a step back rather than take a step forward. Exactly. You know, in this human right in the red light scheme, it's like if it sees you going through a red light, it automatically sends out a ticket. It doesn't go through anyone who makes a job, you know, are you way to the hospital having a child? You know, are you being chased? It doesn't, none of that's relevant. The camera just sees it, knows it, you get the ticket, no person intervenes. Why is that bad? Why isn't that perfect justice? You know, that's, you know, um, that's Les Miserables, really. You know, it's the law, uh, wacko, because it has no human compassion. No human so, compassion. 
so to kind of bring our part of this to a close, you know, we've talked a lot about, obviously, the context of technology. What we haven't talked about is the context of terrorism. And that's where I think the Apple FBI um, situation kind of links those two, because, of course, the reason the FBI wants to get this particular phone is because of the San Bernardino terrorist attack. Uh, and so as a contextual matter, does the context that we're all living in of international and domestic terrorism uh, change the priority that we put on uh, privacy and, and our fear of the surveillance state? Um, you know, we can, is, is, is something to discuss, and now we have to discuss because we're up to our question time. So uh, I am advised to advise you all that we have two standing mics, so please approach one of the two standing mics if you have a question. We won't take questions from You have to go seats. to the mics. No, because it's being recorded. No, right. And, um, <laughs> Forever. <laughs> I think you made us, my point. <laughs> please uh, tell, us, tell us your name. Ask one question. <laughs> <laughs> your social security number. No, no, <laughs> I, I was planning to do exactly that. Uh, you've talked about FBI versus Apple. I'd like all three of you to give us your views on that. I think the public is very confused. And if you support FBI, would you limit, as Linda was sort of implying, uh, to law enforcement exception, or even more limited, to terrorism situations. And second, my comment to Robert, on the red light cameras, my understanding is, and we fought this, is that the only thing they can record is the license plate number. If, in fact, they were recording people in the car, would that make a difference? Okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll plunge into that. So... Um I am sympathetic to the FBI's desire to get this particular phone. They have a warrant. They have a neutral magistrate. Um, the people whose phone it was are dead, and dead people don't have a privacy interest. So if this were the standalone case, uh, I would rule for the government. Now, of course, Apple makes um, a rather powerful case that it can't be confined to this one phone in this one context, and that once the unlocking code is out in the world, and we know this from the history of technology, you can't, you can't bring it back. So uh, it, I, I think that's why it's a total, I mean, I'm punting a little. It's so totally fascinating. Now, I gather going forward, Apple's going to get us out of this dilemma because they are now working on code that, on encryption code that cannot be de-encrypted even by their own best software people. So it will moot, going forward, moot this issue. But I, you know, I think um, if it were just this phone, I'd say, yeah, government, go, go ahead. So, so on your question about the people in the car, if you go to London now, there are cameras everywhere. And um, they are meant not to watch you run a red light, because it's hard to drive in downtown London. They're, they are meant to exactly record your facial recognition. Right. The point is a network of cameras uh, connected to facial recognition software to track down terrorists, to track where you move um, in the city. 
And um, if you think about that, that's just a generalization of the example of the circuit court decision that Linda was discussing earlier in which we're taking uh, camera photographs of a public place and your movement in a public place, we're just doing it systematically. And now the question is, what does systematically add or subtract from our notion of privacy? And I take it that goes to our sense of, is this for me or am I for it? You know, and to the extent that I'm just for it and I'm part of a cog in that machine, does that dehumanize me and how? And that's the question, really, that you're raising there. On, on the question of Apple, uh, well, you know, there's a warrant there. So in the case of any usual search and seizure, that's how we protect privacy. You have a third party, a judge, see, is there a real need for this in terms of law enforcement? Answer, yes. Um, but this is a very unusual case because it's under something called the All Writs Act, which I've actually never read, so I can't tell you much about it. But I can tell you it's an 18th century act, and they certainly didn't contemplate this. And uh, one of the things it allows a court to do, and I'm no expert on this, but it allows it to issue writs to third parties to do things. So how the government can tell Apple, there's someone in the audience here, Tom Gloser, who is far more expert in this than I am, who used to run Thomson Reuters, but it's actually telling a third party independently, construct a program, do this. I mean, where does the government get off telling someone how to do that? That's a separate question than a privacy question. What? It can lead anywhere to make you do anything. So I don't understand how they get that power. That's not strictly a privacy power. That's a liberty issue of conscripting your services, your brain power, your capacity to a government end. That's like drafting you. And that's a separate sort of issue. Yeah, I was looking at a poll where uh, I felt a little bit uncomfortable because, you know, there are basically pluralities, uh, or I guess you can't have pluralities on both sides, but in, in a, it's sort of 40% on one side, 40% on the other side, or 50% on the other side, and then 11% saying, I don't know. And I'm fearful that I'm in that 11% <laughs> of I don't know, uh, because I think that some of those people are like, I don't know what an iPhone is, <laughs> right? Uh, so... Um, that is uh, not a comfortable place to me to be. Uh, the, the worry is, so, so I think that if the status quo, if there's no intervention by, say, Congress, right, which has been, you know, a recent uh, proposal, so, um, you know, I think that for all the reasons that my uh, illustrious colleagues have, have articulated that uh, Apple will lose this case, um, I have qualms, right, perhaps I sense heavier qualms, you know, um, about this case um, on, on the other side, on Apple's side. So one is uh, technological. If, if, you, if you create this backdoor, then it's a backdoor for all devices. Or alternatively, it, it, it incentivizes the creation of a completely unbreakable, right, uh, or an attempt to create a completely unbreakable uh, code. So something that would not be, you know, uh, accessible, um, um, that, that, that Apple itself couldn't break. And so I don't think we want that either. Um, on the government side, the warrant, the warrant point troubles me because I think, you know, yes, they have a warrant, but, you know, this is a, this is a global company. So does that mean that any country with a warrant, you know, so, so presumably if any court in anywhere in the world issues a warrant, that if, if Apple's going to break under this warrant, that the same argument would apply for, yep. for those, right? So does that mean that, you know, if some, you know, other government, you know, wants to issue a warrant to say you have to disclose this to us. That's extremely worrisome to me, right? So this is why I would rather have, you know, um, 
congressional involvement. I know that sounds utopian in this particular moment <laughs> in time. Um, but Can't you mean the Congress that brought us FISA and the FISA court? <laughs> well, right. So, but it's it's a question of right. It's it's a question of compared to what, right? And, and I guess that this is a, this is an instance in which um, you trust Michael McConnell. No, but it's an instance in which I think that there needs to be a more systemic overview. A right? public discussion. Yeah, yeah, of it. And I think that there's enough public heat behind this issue that we could actually have, you know, a public discussion about the pros and cons across the board. So I'm not, I don't think that this is what the Albrecht Act was designed for. I don't think that this is what, I don't think like an individual magistrate judge should be able to like sign a particular warrant, you know, to your, you know, FISA court thing. Like I'm, I'm also not comfortable with, you know, the Snowden disclosures of one particular magistrate judge, you know, the Roger Vinson signing this uh, particular um, uh, uh, warrant. Um, so it, it's, uh, it's something that I think needs much more systemic review. So, um, so if you take Congress's proxy for this broader overview or broader review, right, um, that's the way that I would go. Question over there. Yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, first of all, thank you all very much. It was fascinating. Um, I, I want to follow up on the uh, Apple versus FBI from a somewhat different perspective, I think. And I don't know if this is legal or political or social or technological or all of them. But I, I wonder, and I'd be interested in views from any of you, um, if one of the underlying issues in this kind of global technological context is which institutions get to make the decisions about individual privacy, that is, government or corporations. For instance, if a year from now, Apple discovered that there was a ring of its employees working for the Chinese government, say, and that those employees were a week away from cracking whatever key source codes Apple had and revealing everything to the Chinese government and ruining Apple's business. And Apple had access to the iPhones of its employees on which there were these communications among them. I wonder whether Apple would say, well, we have an interest in delving into those iPhones, and we certainly will find a way to do that because our business will implode if we don't do that. So I guess the question is, would Apple, could Apple make that kind of decision? And if it could, is the current situation one in which Apple is saying, well, we don't want the government to make a decision about its own interests, but of course, we would always reserve the right to make our own interest, I mean, our own decision in our own interest. Yeah, well, and of course, the Constitution only runs to the government, so uh, the Fourth Amendment is no curb on Apple's right to break into its own telephones, if I understand the, yeah. the scenario. Right. right. Yeah, especially if they've actually clicked yes on your contract of adhesion that you talked about earlier. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Yeah. Um. So, I mean, normally private to private is governed by statutes. Kenji was saying, you know, he would prefer a congressional statute to allocate who gets the, who gets, uh, the ability to waive who's pri invade whose privacy. 
first one issue is private power versus public power. There's a lot of people who say the private power of companies like Facebook or Google is so great, it ought to be considered as if it was a company town, i.e. public. It should be subject to constitutional constraints. And in many countries in the world, they would be subject to constitutional constraints because the Constitution doesn't run only against the government, but those exercising a kind of power like that. So that's one theme behind your question. The second theme is, uh, is, the, does pri is privacy a matter of social rules that are imposed or a matter of private ordering, which is contractual? So I know when, we, when we're trying to draft rules about private information, the question is, to what extent can we rely on contracts and agreements and private orderings to set these rules? Or to what extent are they like the contract that Linda read you, what we call in law a contract of adhesion, namely you just click it, you have no idea what it says, you never read it, and to imagine that you're actually agreeing to something is a fiction. You have no capacity to disagree because everyone needs to look at USA Today or no one could plausibly read that without ruining their eyes or whatever it is. Uh, or understand it if they read it. So the thought of voluntary arrangements, and so you're actually waiving it, is is a fiction, and we ought to do away with it. Those are two major themes behind what you're saying. Hi, Linda. Jack McKenzie. Um, we know each other. <laughs> I uh, I don't understand why we can't just solve the Apple thing now while working on all this other cyber stuff. Uh, we got a, we got, a, pre preliminarily, has anybody read the order that's, a, that's, a, that's under review? I haven't seen it, I can't find it. Uh, we don't know what the judge really even said about the All Writs Act or anything else, but we ought to find out, and we ought to, we can litigate the Apple, the re I can't build a house that can't be broken into uh, I, I've got, if, if there's a warrant for my house, I've got to unlock it for somebody. It's not that I, they can make me build a system. I just can't do the opposite. According Jack, to me. Jack, what's your question? Uh, what, don't you agree? <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't you agree that, that I can that I can't, I can't build a, a structure that can't be have uh, searched pursuant to a warrant. That's what Apple says. It, but apparently done. they have. That's the interesting point. They've done it, but they yeah. they can't. I say they can't. Logically or legally? Constitutionally, yeah, I mean, humanly. I mean, if it's a question of legally, that's exactly the question on the table, whether they should be permitted to do it legally. Yeah. Well, the answer is I, I think currently legally my answer would be you're, you're, I totally agree with you, right? But I'm not normatively. I don't think that that should be the answer. So le like no normatively, I think that there should be a broader overview of this. But like legally, I agree with you if there I mean, this is the earlier point about the warrant. So I, I heard that to be. So I think the only complication with the analogy is to say it's not just one house, it's like a gazillion you know, identical houses, and it's not that you have the key in hand, it's that you have to build the key that would also allow you to access all the other houses as well, or allow someone who you know, was able to replicate that key to get into all the other houses as well. So I think it's a little bit more, I don't think the analogy is, is particularly great you know, there, or it's, 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 it's a little weak. There, but you know, in terms of the, the pure law here, as opposed to what I but believe an ideal world policy should look like, I think you're you're right. 
Okay, I think we're going to go. Thank ahead. you. Sir. Hi, I'm Jim Pisanich. I'm a docent here. You have posed a, a series of questions regarding privacy and whatever. And clearly the technology is increasing exponentially. The law as it exists today is inadequate to deal with that. What source exists that can deal with something like this that's going to change by the time that source decides something? I mean, what is it a law? Is it an amendment? Is it Congress? Is it, is it a special organization that does that? How, how do you ultimately have the ability to, to decide these decisions that you've all posed today? Well, there's always this tendency to sort of say, somebody will know the answer. And we're actually in a situation where nobody knows the answer. That's the, you know, we have only our own resources. And when your own resources are dysfunctional institutions like Congress, it's kind of worrisome. Um, it's worrisome when you see um, federal judges do it in an individual case. A lot of the privacy protocols for the internet were not set by any governmental organization at all, but international committees of technicians, you know, who decided what the protocols were for the exchange of packets, et cetera, et cetera. So it, um, it's a very, and, and this is international as well as national. So we're dealing with systems which are extremely complex which are a decentralized decision-making that can be private and professional and technical, which can be public in the, in the level of statutes at the federal or state level um, or at the judicial level, um, and which, uh, around which and um, as a result of which social norms are constantly forming and reforming, which in turn have feedback loops on how we legally reg regulate ourselves. And all of that is in motion. Is what I would say. Robert, do you want to talk maybe about the right to be forgotten litigation in Europe is exemplary of this? So you may know about this right to be forgotten. Um, I, if you, are, uh, you, were commi you committed a crime, which of course is a public thing. The newspaper reports on you, public thing. Um, and then it's 20 years later and you say, I should be forgiven. I have the right to a new life. The newspaper shouldn't be able, you shouldn't be able to search online through Google. This is a, a decision made by the European Court of Justice. You shouldn't be able to search online in the newspaper through Google to find out that I was convicted of a crime. It's, they call it the right to be forgotten. It's spreading throughout Europe. It's spreading in Latin America. It's coming to Japan. Um, this is really uh, a fascinating development in the law of privacy because it goes to the normative space of what's appropriate and inappropriate to know about somebody. Do you get to know their past? In the United States, we're most likely to say um, accountability. If you did it, it was a public fact, then people ought to be able to know that about you. In Europe, um, they're saying now increasingly no. Um, actually, you served your time. You get to be rehabilitated. And so we don't get to know about you, and we're going to wipe your slate clean. We do that in this country, like for juvenile justice. We don't make a public record so that the slate can be clean. And this is, this is a perfect example of the normative premises of uh, privacy, very controversial. And in this country, extremely con And the question is, internationally, whose norms are going to govern? It presents a business decision for, <coughs> for you know, Google, <coughs> of course, you know, circulates information internationally. And so they have to have different servers, or I don't even know the technology, but they have to segment uh, their business according to the underlying law that's developing. So, yes. Yes. Um, I'd be very interested in your um, thoughts on the discussion that was in the paper yesterday about the different agencies that were discussing with the president the ability to share data among each other. Um, 
I'm also concerned that census data, which cannot by by statute cannot be shared, would could come under that the aegis of this um these these kinds of decisions. And right now, health data is not shared among different agencies, as is IRS data. And I'm concerned that as these sort of different surveillance agencies start talking about sharing data, that could be one of the results. Yeah. Well, I I mean I think. This goes back even sort of almost pre-technology. I mean, FERPA is an example, right? So uh, what's known as the Buckley Amendment um, that governs uh, educational records, educational privacy um, has had kind of unintended consequences in, in disabling parents from knowing like, what's up with their college-age children, the law of unintended consequences. Well, you know, this was a theme in the 9-11 Commission. Like, how did those people actually you know, take up? And it was the lack of sharing of information between CIA, FBI. And so one major thrust uh, in the war against terror that Linda was talking about has been you can't fight terror unless you share the information and use it efficiently. Because you have one piece over here with this agency and another piece of information over there with that agency, and they don't put it together in order to form a coherent picture so you can't actually stop the terrorists. That's the, that was the line. And so what you have seen since then is a progressive movement to be more efficient and widespread in the sharing of the data. And of course, from the point of view of the citizen, that's terrifying in the sense that now everybody knows everything about everybody. And that makes you feel like the red light cameras always on you. You know, there's no place to hide anymore. And that's the trade-off that you're going to see. But I mean, if the main complaint is by statute, this data must be compartmentalized, then I don't think that's much of a barrier given the way Congress works with terror. They'll just basically change the law, and then what one will say? Hi, uh, my name is Allie Frick, and um, I guess I'll speak on behalf of millennials today. Um, <laughs> I think, well, I guess only speaking for myself, there does seem to be a very, um, uh, an important line between information that we freely give to private companies. If we want to use the New York Times website, if we want to post our political views on Facebook or on Twitter versus information that the government has. So I can be very vocal about my views on Facebook and Twitter and still find the Snowden revelations extremely disturbing. But I'm wondering if that line is a, f a fiction or that people like me think that that line exists where it might not really exist, particularly, Dean Post, with your conversation about norms. And I'm wondering if the norms of sharing our data, our, our email through Gmail, et cetera, um, with private companies will in influence how courts view norms about privacy when it comes to the government, and, uh, and whether that's actually a, a distinction without a difference, even though it feels to me like an important distinction. Yeah, I think it feels like it, but in legal terms, it's going to be less and less an important distinction. I mean, it will be, the court will say, you're making it public, ergo it's public, there's no expectation of norms. Moreover, when you give it to a third party, a private third party, it's like your bank records or your bank records, you think they're private, but actually the government can get access to it because it's held by a third party. And the government, um, the the bank can't protect your privacy, can't claim your privacy to protect your records, and, and similarly with would, your records. And would that apply parties. to email as well? Like the government could, you could, could the could a government say that you've given up your right to privacy in your letters, your correspondence, by sharing it with Gmail? Right. So the government does not. You do not give up your right to a letter that's written. 
but I, my email comes out of the Yale server. Uh, Yale, I, I think of it as my mail, my private mail, but actually Yale retains the right, as Harvard retains the right, to look over my email because it's on their server. It's their, you know. So one thinks about one's email as private, but actually most of it's coming out of work. And Gmail uh, and Google does actually have analytics that go through all your Gmail and know what you're talking about so that they can target advertising. They do that all the time. And it's probably right. if you look at your agreement, you would but see can that. can that be shared with the government? I think if Google has it, then, the, then uh, the government will be able to get it from Google if it wants it. That would be my view. You know, there's a flap right now at Berkeley, which of course is a public institution. So Janet Napolitano, the former secretary of um, DHS, Department of Homeland Security, is now the head of the Cal system. And uh, to detect hacking and um, unwanted invasions of the Berkeley server, they set up a program that would review all uh, website and email traffic, not to personify it, but to look for patterns. And the Berkeley faculty reacted very strongly against this. It's an ongoing um, issue there uh, because Berkeley is not a private institution. It is the government, but as Robert says, you know, is this a distinction without a difference? Um, Harvard's had its issues with um, administrators looking at emails and had to come up with a new policy that um, at least sets some criteria not just at the initiative of one individual administrator and so on. It's, these are really unfolding, uh, happening in real time, you know, as we're, as we're sitting here. I think you're a true representative of your cohort in this sense <laughs> of that, you know, there's at least some polling that suggests that millennials are much more comfortable sharing, right, with private parties rather than with the government, right? And then boomers and Gen Xers are more comfortable sharing with the government on terrorism issues, right, than sharing with private individuals. And so there's actually a flip there. Why are boomers comfortable sharing with the government? Sure. On terrorism issues. So they, I think they, they, they feel more strongly about national security issues and they feel like that's a strong enough interest. Whereas, you know, sh you know sharing with private individuals and companies is not seen to be a strong enough interest for a violation of privacy. Question here. Uh, John Hansen. Um, what are your thoughts on adding a constitutional amendment that explicitly guarantees the right to privacy. No one would know what it means. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so I mean, I, I don't want to be too doom and gloom here, but like when I say like let's have Congress do something, that's like signal number one of like, and I want to say just generally that's actually not a council of despair, you know, on the idea of we should have a public debate about it. It's just a sort of admission of stymie, right? Technology is so far outpacing the law. How can we actually bring them into line with each other? Um, just as an add-on, actually, with the right to be forgotten, like Google has assembled panels, right, of experts, right, who are actually experts in the internet, you know, in, in cyber technology, because you have to be an expert in cyber technology in order to understand, like, where the where the line would be. And so that's uh, the earlier point about sort of how to draw on expertise, you know, other than expertise in the law. But, you know, to your point about constitutional amendments, I feel like that is a counsel for despair, right? Because whenever someone says, shouldn't we have a constitutional amendment about this, right? I, I, I feel like they're just conceding the whole policy issue because our constitution is so hard to amend 
And we've only had 27 amendments in the entire history of this country. Ten of them came as a bulk installment in the Bill of Rights. I just find it unimaginable that we would be able to get the supermajorities of Congress and the states in order to pass a constitutional amendment on anything of import. So frankly, like, I would be much more of a, a Scalia-esque originalist if we actually had a real right, uh, amendment procedure. But because we have such a hypo-amendable constitution, our constitution is so hard to amend, I think that puts a lot of pressure right, on, for updating reasons for judges to read broadly worded uh, provisions of the constitution uh, broadly in order to make sure that they're up to date and current. Right. But, you know, the predicate of all of that is our Constitution is so hard to amend that whenever somebody says, shouldn't we amend the Constitution, I just sort of, I'm sorry, but I sort of stopped listening, right? I just, I'm just like, okay, you know, I can't, I can't even process that. Also, in the context of the constitutional law, privacy uh, is used to mean basically liberty. So you think of the right to privacy in Roe versus Wade or the right to same-sex marriage. It, it tends to be um, a, pri a sphere of private liberty as opposed to public control. And that's a very different use of privacy than the ones we're describing here. So when you use privacy and put it together with the Constitution, you're, one is now talking about many, many different things. And think also of private property. Private property um, is a locus also of understanding what privacy is in the constitutional realm. And last question. I'm from, I come from the health perspective, and it just, it's interesting to me that, I mean, there seems to be a precedent in health. I mean, if, if a person gets Ebola, they, everything can be taken away from them. They can't go out of their house. They can't do anything. So why is this so much different? I mean, it's, it's the terror of the public. We're worried about terrorism here, and there we're worried about Ebola. You know. So uh, there's actually a big debate about whether the response to Ebola went too far and was too invasive, and um, actually a group of students at Yale Law School is, is litigating this issue on behalf of people that were subject to the Ebola quarantine. And I, I think that's a question, I mean, it's a question of law, but it also you know, relates to the question of norms that Robert was raising and the kind of um, you know, what happens in the face of public panic uh, based on not very much relevant information. So um, it's, it's an interesting analogy. Thank you, Peggy. It's interesting that the public health perspective on persons um, uh, is very objectifying. So uh, we need to prevent your intake of sugar. We need to prevent you from um, having cigarettes in order to protect your health. Um, and uh, that's very contrary to, the, to a notion of persons as normed as um, socialized, as making their own decisions, et cetera. So whenever you see a public health perspective, it tends to be in a great deal of tension with constitutional law, except in extreme moments like quarantine. And it's viewed as an exception for that reason. So we have to stop. Uh, you've been a great audience. And thank you. Thank you for coming. Good morning, everyone. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and it is so wonderful. This is our third program with you. Linda Greenhouse, Robert Post, Kenji Yoshino. Wonderful audience. There's plenty more to come, so if you don't have our brochure, pick one up. We have a lot of great programs coming up. And, you know, as Louise said, their books are on our museum store. No formal book signing tonight, but... Um, we're going to be talking about our next film and Saturday morning program for next year with the three of you. And uh, we look forward to having you back again. You're absolutely wonderful.
Thank you all so much for coming.